New documents show how one of the largest companies in Florida secretly worked against their political opponents. Power giant FPL says it's confident it did nothing illegal in trying to shape public policy and press coverage. Plus, the battle over sex education in Florida public schools. This is the Florida Roundup from WLRN Public Media in Miami and WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Melissa Ross. Well, this hour, Florida Power and Light is the dominant electricity company in the state. New evidence is shining a light on how the utility giant operated behind the scenes, hoping to dim support for solar power and clean energy and more energy competition. Then later, why did one Florida school board reject sex ed curriculum and then reverse its decision just a week later? We want to hear from you. 305-995-1800. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup here on Florida Public Radio. Thanks for supporting public broadcasting in your community. I'm Tom Hudson in Miami. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, Florida Power and Light powers much of Florida. It's also a pretty powerful voice in politics. But just how powerful is coming to light in a new lawsuit involving a political consulting firm used by the utility giant? From wanting to make, quote, life a living hell for a Democratic state senator to directly steering media coverage, FPL is under this new scrutiny. So what do new documents and emails show about the extent to which FPL may have gone to try to shape solar power legislation and competition in the electric market here in the Sunshine State? And what does the evidence show voters about how power and cult work here in Florida? We should note FPL is a financial supporter of many public radio stations in Florida. We're going to begin the hour with a closer look at these new revelations around Florida power and light. Give us a call no matter who is powering your home or business anywhere in the state. Join the statewide conversation now on the Florida Roundup. The number to join us, 305-995-1800. Tweet us at Florida Roundup. Your phone calls and tweets coming up in some moments here. Mario Alejandro Ariza is with us, reporter for Floodlight Florida, and Annie Martin is a reporter for Orlando Sentinel. Both of them on this uh, report here this week regarding FPL and some new evidence that has come to light regarding its clout and power in the Sunshine State. Mario, let's start with uh, the source of these new revelations. Uh, Where is this evidence coming from? Good afternoon, folks. Um, So the source of these revelations is actually uh, anonymous. We uh, received a lot of these documents um, through uh, email messages uh, from folks that are really personas. Um, And we don't really know where some of these documents uh, originated from. Some of them actually showed up at the offices of the Orlando Sentinel in in an envelope with no return address Mm. at one point. And the great challenge in this reporting has been verifying the authenticity of the documentation that we have received, making sure that everything that ends up in the paper is 100% accurate and true. Annie, describe some of that work about authenticating the source or sources uh, and the evidence itself. 
on that in a number of ways. Um, one of the most important has been comparing them to records that are publicly available to make sure information that is included in the records matches up um, with documents, including like business registration records, um, you know, public email addresses, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but we've also been able to authenticate some of the records from the owner of the firm where the consultants where um, that were working with FPNL, where they were working at the time, they were um, sending these emails and exchanging these records. Um, he has been able to confirm that those records exist um, on his servers. So that's been very helpful as well. This is the firm Matrix, a political consulting firm that uh, has done work uh, in the southeastern United States, including extensive work here in Florida with Florida elections and campaigns. Uh, Mario, what was the relationship between FPL and this consulting firm, Matrix? That's a great question. Um, so according to um, Eric Szilagyi, the CEO of FPL, um, they hired Matrix, uh, I believe, about a decade ago. Um, and as he puts it, it was for... Um, voter analysis, uh, opinion polling, sentiment analysis, basically figuring out um, how people felt about certain issues. Um, but the records um, sort of point to uh, a different story. Now, I, I should note that the, the founder of Matrix, Joe Perkins, mm -hmm. um, has said that he, he essentially didn't know what his CEO was doing in Florida, and he's called these actions the actions of rogue employees. Um, so that distinction is, is important. Um, but it turns out, you know, from the records that they were doing a lot more than just voter and sentiment analysis. And what kind of other work and what how much of that work was at the direction uh, of FPL that has been shown in the evidence that you've seen? Yeah, so that's a great question that I need to be very careful about my wording. Right. Um, we have seen Matrix um, sort of participate in Florida politics from the very small level to the very largest levels, right? From campaigns to stop uh, a, an amendment that would have deregulated uh, the energy market here in Florida to um, efforts to overturn uh, pro-solar policies by a South Miami mayor um, that then turned into efforts to investigate that uh, pro-solar Miami mayor. Uh, we've seen that they had a hand in funding the mailers that went out and promoted uh, the ghost candidates uh, in uh, several Senate districts. Um, and, you know, they, that was sort of the, the work that they were doing here in Florida. We're talking about some uh, new evidence that has come to light uh, by uh, uh, with two reporters, Mario Alejandro Ariza with Floodlight Florida, Annie Martin with the Orlando Sentinel, 305-995-1800 or at Florida Roundup on Twitter with your questions or comments. We'll get to those in a moment. Annie, uh, tell us about some of the evidence that was shared with you, particularly an email from Florida Power and Light CEO telling two vice presidents of FPL to make a state senator's life, quote, a living hell. What's what's the background that led to that email and, and what happened? Well, that is an email that uh, FPL CEO Eric Szilagyi sent to a couple of vice presidents where they had sent him a news story 
about some legislation that Jose Javier Rodriguez, who was a Democratic state senator from Miami, um, had filed. And Eric Szilagyi responded, I want you to make his life hell. Um, and, you know, it's not clear how much he knew of what was going to transpire next, but um, the Matrix executives were definitely involved in trying to get Jose Javier Rodriguez, who a lot of people know as JJR, mm -hmm. out of office. Um, there was a consultant who um, drafted a plan proposing recruiting a primary opponent for JJR. Um, it's not clear that that plan was ever acted upon, but um, that idea was certainly floated. Um, and then also the Matrix consultants, as um, Mario mentioned, were very heavily involved in um, the ghost candidate scandal in 2020, where um, a nonprofit group, a dark money group, um, organized and run by um, people working for Matrix, paid to send out mailers promoting an independent candidate. Um, who ran against JJR, had the same last name, um, did not actively campaign for the position, but um, had entered the race uh, in an apparent attempt to siphon votes away from JJR. And um, FBNL has denied any involvement right. in the ghost candidate scandal, and we have not seen any evidence that they were directly involved, but certainly these consultants who were, they were working closely with at that time um, were very involved in in directing that scheme. There was additional uh, evidence shared with you, Mario, that you reported on this week about FPL's efforts to shape media coverage, press coverage, and the role with an online news site called The Capitalist, spelled like the building, not the economic system, it should be noted. Uh, tell us a little bit about what what has been uh, reported on FPL's efforts to to shape this kind of media coverage. Yeah, the records are, are fascinating. They show that uh, a Matrix uh, operative, uh, an employee, uh, purchased, um, you know, first through a, a purchase option agreement, and then eventually it seems like they purchased it, uh, the capitalist, uh, and the, they were sort of kind of running it behind the scenes. I mean, we have emails where um, the editor of the capitalist, Brian Burgess, who stands by his coverage, um, was sort of asking for uh, feedback on stories and on headlines from uh, Matrix staff. And Matrix staff would sometimes ping uh, vice presidents at FPL about this matter. Um, and at one point, I think we have an email that shows um, Eric Selegy himself sort of proposing a story, the CEO of FPL, and then that story a couple of days later, running in the capitalist. Now, uh, we asked here at the Florida Roundup for a statement from FPL, and uh, part of that statement uh, read that, uh, quote, from the moment we learned about these allegations, we, meaning FPL, undertook a thorough investigation, which found no evidence of illegal wrongdoing by FPL or any of our employees. The statement continued that uh, we believe our company and our employees have acted legally in our business dealings, uh, and these documents provide both an inaccurate and misleading representation of our actions. Annie, what do you make of, of that statement? Well, uh, FPNL told us something similar, and um, I, I think it's important to note that they have not provided us with evidence or any other kind of records that would show um, the rest of the picture. They've said, 
these records provide an incomplete and misleading picture, well, okay, what's the rest of the story mm -hmm. then? Um, and they're not disputing the authenticity of these records. They've not said Eric Solagi didn't send this email saying um, make JJR's life hell. Um, and in fact, he said in an interview with us uh, last month that, um, you know, he confirmed that that email was real. Um, so, I, you know, obviously, as reporters, we always welcome additional information. And if they would like to send us additional documentation that would provide a fuller picture, I think we would certainly welcome that. Mario, there's another part of the statement that FPL provided to the Florida Roundup that calls into question the credibility of the owner of this political consulting firm, Matrix. Uh, FPL mm -hmm. said it thinks that the documents were leaked, uh, as it said, to gain leverage in a lawsuit. Uh, and said that the owner, Joe Perkins, has a federal history of making false statements. That was the FPL statement to us. Do you know what FPL is referring to there? So uh, this didn't make it into our reporting uh, or, or into our report, but, but Mr. Perkins was um, in 1991, um, he received a civil citation from the Federal Elections Commission for uh, essentially moving some money from his company, or I may not be getting this right, but it's essentially like he directed his employees to send money to a, a political campaign and gave them bonuses. He paid a $5,000 civil fine. He never admitted wrongdoing there. Um, and I think that's what they're referring to in, in that matter, um, which, which, yes, I mean, that, that did occur, and, and you can find those documents online. Right. It's the Florida Roundup. And we're talking about a new investigation showing, according to leaked documents, the lengths to which Florida Power and Light has allegedly gone to to direct its media coverage, allegedly dim the transition to solar power and clean energy in Florida, and more. 305-995-1800. Call us up wherever you are in the state. Tweet us at Florida Roundup. Jody in Gainesville. Hey, Jody, you're on the radio. Go ahead. Hey there. So this is an old strategy that goes back to the 70s in the Alex Group, which is a pro-business legislation. So where you have the legislatures kind of in public conflict doing pro-business. Some of our um, governors, you know, did that. And they're pretty open now in the 21st century. That is a pro-business legislature with special interest over public interest. So we're always dealing with that profit over the truth. And uh, it's, a, it's a disease that has infiltrated Florida and uh, made politics a special interest and not a public interest. Jody, thanks for your thoughts. Andy Martin, Orlando Sentinel, let me get you to react to that. Uh, rate payers out there, you know, they're, they're paying their electric bills. They're pretty high right now, whether they're paying to FP&L or not. What do you think this investigation shows about the public interest in this state? We all have an interest in how we get our energy uh, and also in the transition to clean energy, uh, which has become ever more urgent in recent years. Annie Martin. Well, I think if you're an FPNL customer, as many Floridians are, um, this certainly would make you question whether the utility has the public's interest at, at you know, if that's their top of mind. Um, and FBNL has made the distinction that we're not using uh, money that we collect from uh, customers for political activities. But I think that's a, a fuzzy distinction. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, 
whether it's money that's collected from ratepayers or some other source, I mean, you know, it's a utility, a public utility that is is funded by the people in the state, and and they have you know certain bounds and restrictions that they are obligated to, to operate within. Three zero five nine nine five eighteen hundred. Eric in Pinellas County has been holding too. Hey, Eric, what are your thoughts? Hi, good afternoon. Yes. Electricity is a necessity. Uh, it's a requirement for life now. It should not be a private business and should be a public entity instead. You're for public power. Okay, Eric, thanks for that. Uh, Mario, you know, this is an investor-owned utility. It has a profit motive. What about the argument that uh, electricity should be community-owned? Some some cities do have that, like Jacksonville, for example. We'll talk about that a little more later in the show. But Mario... Indeed. I mean, I think um, it's it's a valid argument to have, right? Whether in the transition to uh, more renewable and lower carbon intensive forms of energy, the 100 year old model that we have of investor owned monopoly utilities isn't something that we should be revisiting and, and scrutinizing and having a discussion around. Um, but, you know, public power is also not uh, necessarily something that is without its perils, right? Um, Jacksonville's electric utility is a good example of that. Um, but it, it is something that would be a very different model, right? And, and, and bears discussion. Dan in Orlando. Hey, Dan, you're on the Florida Roundup. Hey, was just wondering, is there anything actionable in all of this evidence against Florida Power? Or at this point, is it just Accusation, for lack of a better word. Thanks for that question, Dan. Annie Martin, there is a lawsuit, but uh, is there the potential for anything beyond that? Well, um, Kathy Castor, a congresswoman from Tampa, has asked the Department of Justice to investigate the utilities' use of dark money organizations. Um, she sent that letter yesterday to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Um, I think we'll have to wait and see if anything comes of that. Um, but I do think that um, this is certainly something um, that is going to remain a topic of discussion, and, and we'll just have to see where it goes from here. Before we go to break, too, Annie, you know, how extraordinary is this? Do you see other utilities in other states operating in this way, uh, this extraordinary way as what we're seeing here in the Sunshine State? Um, Mario might have a better handle on that than I do, but I do think that there have been other scandals involving public utilities in other states um, that may be reminiscent of this one. I don't know if the um, connection between public utilities and other places and the use of dark money for political purposes, that that specific scheme has been um, as apparent in other parts of the country. Um, but um, it, Mario might have some thoughts on that as well, if, if you have time. Is it just something in the water in Florida, in Florida Mario? <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it's a broader problem. I, I think in a lot of states, um, utilities are some of the most powerful political actors around. If you look at the first energy scandal in Ohio, 
uh, I believe a utility there that was trying to build a nuclear power plant used a dark money group to funnel money to the Speaker of the House in that state, and it's led to several federal indictments. Um, and he's no longer the Speaker of the House. Not um, a unique so- Florida issue then. Uh, well, folks, uh, wherever you are statewide, we want your calls here on the Florida Roundup as we talk about new allegations against utility giant Florida Power and Light. What are your questions? Keep listening and call in. The number to join us from the peninsula to the panhandle this Friday is 305-995-1800. Tweet us at Florida Roundup. More of your calls and tweets after this break. This is the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, always be celebrating. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. In Miami, I'm Tom Hudson. We're talking about new reporting focused on the power and influence of Florida Power and Light, one of the largest companies here in the Sunshine State. Some new documents in a legal case shine a light on how it operated behind the scenes, hoping to dim support for solar power and more competition. FPL is a financial supporter of many public radio stations in Florida. Share your thoughts, 305-995-1800. Power, money, business, clout in Florida, 305-995-1800, or on Twitter, at Florida Roundup. Well, it was a revelation that one journalism instructor at UF called unsettling, even un-American. Earlier this summer, a journalist at the Florida Times Union in Jacksonville learned that a consultant for Florida Power and Light actually had him under surveillance. Yeah, it was back in 2020. Prominent North Florida columnist Nate Monroe was being secretly tailed by an investigator after writing critically about the parent company of FPL trying to take over JEA. That's Jacksonville's publicly owned utility. The failed attempt to privatize JEA became a big scandal in Jacksonville, sparked a federal grand jury investigation and criminal charges. Yeah. Now, as the privatization push for JEA was going on, These leaked records show the consultant was investigating Nate Monroe's personal life, even taking secret photographs of him and his wife in Jacksonville and other spots around the state. I spoke with Nate Monroe about this surveillance and its implications. Here's that conversation. Nate Monroe, good to be with you. Thanks for joining the Florida Roundup. Sure. So as we talk about Florida Power and Light, we want to spend a few minutes talking about a story that involved you personally. You're a columnist with the Florida Times Union. You were aggressively reporting on uh, attempts to privatize JEA, the city-owned utility in Jacksonville. That did lead to a federal grand jury investigation. Some of your stories were critical at times of Florida Power and Light. You recently learned that a consulting firm working for FPNL was surveilling you. Tell us what you learned and the nature of this surveillance leaked records from this political consulting firm, Matrix, uh, which had worked with Florida Power and Light for uh, much of the last decade. These records indicate that consultants, former consultants at that firm, a private investigator pull a pretty detailed background report on me. Um, This background report went far beyond the kind of stuff that you can find in a Google search and, in fact, went far beyond what 
even pretty experienced investigative reporters can and really should be able to find on people. Uh, the report contained my unredacted social security number, uh, it had my license plate, my driver's license number. It had the contact information for a pretty wide range of family members, a couple folks I haven't seen since I was a toddler. It had contact information for my former neighbors, uh, neighbors at an apartment I, I had previously lived in in Jacksonville, but also neighbors in the in the neighborhood in Louisiana that I grew up in. So that was that was sort of one interesting uh, piece of those records. Another thing that, that we learned was that they had, at least on one occasion, uh, had somebody following me around and taking pictures, uh, surreptitious photos. Uh, we had a copy of a surreptitious photo of my wife and I walking our dog. This was maybe 100 feet from our front door uh, in October of 2020. Um, the photo, which, you know, of course, we published it, 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 you can kind of tell immediately what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a surreptitious photo. Somebody took this from, a, from an opportunistic angle. And the owner of Matrix, uh, who claims that he had no knowledge of the work that these former employees of his were doing, he confirmed the authenticity of that photo, confirmed that it is a photo that exists on, his, on the hard drive of a former Matrix employee and said that there are other photos of me on there. We also have a text exchange between a former Matrix employee and a Florida Power and Light vice president discussing my whereabouts uh, in November of 2019. Uh, I was actually in Pensacola for a friend's wedding, and the text message chain implies that they had somebody watching me then. So, you know, those are kind of the major sort of pieces on the surveillance operation that we have. Florida Power and Light and these former Matrix employees have told us that they they believe that, that whoever is leaking us these records is leaving out important context or implying that these records may be doctored, but they have not offered any evidence to, to support that. And they also haven't really detailed what context might be helpful or what about the records doesn't seem genuine. It's just sort of a general uh, kind of response. So that's, that's kind of what we have. Uh, and that, you know, those records span um, roughly a year. Uh, this, the, the, the surveillance stuff was running from roughly October of 2019 to October of 2020. I do not know if it was a continuous operation, but that is, those are the timestamps on those records. They broadcast only an interest in my personal life, not in my not in my work, oddly. And uh, the records show that that some of this information, like the background report, was passed on directly to a vice president at Florida Power and Light. Typically, when someone is surveilled and there's a dossier compiled on someone, as apparently there was done for you, uh, it happens a lot with maybe politicians or or other public figures, perhaps in an attempt to discredit them, to find something salacious or unsavory about them, to impugn their reputation. Do you think that's what was being intended for you? You know, I, I want to be careful to stick to what, <clears throat> what we know from, from what the documents tell us. And unfortunately, there's nothing we have that, that I think very clearly explains why they were doing this. 
I think that it, I think it is fair to read into some of the communications that we have an undercurrent of of bad faith uh, or of hostility toward me. But there is nothing that says we're following this guy so that we can discredit him. I honestly, it's something I, I find mysterious myself, uh, and I would like to know more about. And I think we we might learn more about it. The motivations remain unclear to me, even if it might be easy to guess. We don't really know why they were doing this. And I should say also, we don't know if they were doing this to others. I Just as it's easy to guess what their motivations are, it's, it's also easy to assume that I may have not been the only one. What was it like for you personally to discover that you were being surveilled? Well, it was it was obviously surreal, um, and it was not a fun thing to come across. Right, I received a, a dispatch of some documents and had a good sense of what they were going to be about. And when I opened them, <laughs> came across like a photo of my wife and I. Uh, that's a very um, you know it, it was bizarre um, and upsetting on on some level. There's no doubt. So, yeah, I mean, I think people can probably imagine what it felt like. I would encourage everyone to continue reading your reporting on this and other issues in the meantime. And I want to thank you for joining us. Nate Monroe, columnist with the Florida Times Union. Thanks. Thank you, Melissa. Mario Alejandro Ariza with Floodlight Florida and Annie Martin with the Orlando Sentinel also have been reporting on FPL and a political consulting company called Matrix and the relationship between the two. Uh, Mario and Annie, do you know of any other journalists that uh, have been looking at FPL's actions that uh, have been subject to surveillance? Um, not, no, I, I don't have any records that show that specifically. Annie, not that I am aware of. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, has there been any reaction to your reporting this week? Uh, and other reporting from the Public Services Commission here in Florida. This is the group that regulates utilities and uh, and sets rates. Not that I have received personally. Um, I've definitely gotten a lot of feedback from readers who <laughs> were very interested to learn about FPNL's um, you know activities outside of what you would normally expect from a public utility. But um, I, I haven't heard from anybody on the Public Service Commission. Mario, any reaction that you've seen or maybe privately uh, uh, heard from the uh, state regulator? I, I haven't heard anything from the Public Service Commission. I, I would love to see more. Um, you know, the Public Service Commission has said that they took a look at the spending that FPL was doing uh, with its consultants in the previous rate case, which is when they examine, you know, how much the utility gets to charge. Um, but those reports aren't public, right? They're sometimes filed under trade secret or they're not shared with the public. I would love to see those reports. And I think so would a lot of folks in Florida. And what about from other regulators, namely legislative leaders or, or the governor's office? Annie, any reaction there this week? Well, the only, I guess, official reaction I've I've had was from, uh, you know, Congresswoman Kathy Castor, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. who sent the letter to the DOJ asking them to investigate FPNL, um, and, and and we'll have to see um, what comes of that. Um, but I, I haven't heard of any other, you know, official calls for investigations or, or official action. 
Mario, stories of companies wielding political influence are as old as politics, right? Uh, what makes these stories about FPL noteworthy, do you think? And and what do you make about, I suppose, a lack of a public comment, at least, from some of these regulatory bodies? Yeah, so I, I think what people have to understand is that, you know, your utility, your electricity utility isn't a normal public company. It's not like Walmart. Um, it's a little different. Mm-hmm. They get a state-granted monopoly. And in exchange for that state-granted monopoly, they're regulated so they don't gouge you and your bill. Um, And I think it's in everybody's interests to scrutinize that regulation as closely as possible. Um, And the fact that we haven't heard from the regulators, that we haven't heard from the the Office of Public Counsel, who's supposed to be the people's voice in front of the regulators, I think is is interesting. You know, I haven't personally sent the report to them. Maybe I'll be hearing from, from their spokesperson later. I hope so. I hope to have discussion about it with them. Um, but I also think it hits home, right? Like, is this, is my electricity bill going to pay for this stuff? Um, and that's something that we want to make sure, you know, if, if it is happening that we could tell the public. Mario Alejandro Ariza is with Floodlight Florida. Annie Martin is with Orlando Sentinel, two reporters that uh, have received some documents and evidence uh, detailing FPL, Florida Power and Lights actions regarding uh, its uh, efforts to influence public policy, politicians, and uh, even press coverage. Uh, Your phone calls here coming up in a moment. Love to see and uh, read what you think about this on Twitter as well. Uh, Keep it civil, of course. We are at Florida Roundup on social media. The phone number, 305-995-1800. 305-995-1800. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Let's check in with callers now. From across the state, Brent holding on the line in Tampa. Hi, Brent. How are you? Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sure. Yes. So I'm in the solar industry. Um, I've been with the same solar installation company for 10 years, and we operate up and down the East Coast. I have two points I'd like to make. The first is interesting that we're talking about the Public Service Commission because of all the states we operate, whenever anybody goes uh, solar, they have to do an interconnection application with their utility company. One of this is when they get their net meter, they want to make sure that the grid will not be damaged by the solar exporting power from the home. In Florida, they perform this application process after the solar installation is fully complete. That's designed, engineered, inspected, and a lot of times paid in full. Uh, and then the customer finds out after the fact they have to reduce their system size. And in all the other states we operate, this application is done prior to install. To me, that is a clear directive to damage a solar company and the experience of a solar company. Um, and then the, the other point I wanted to make was that the, up, the, the legislation that almost went through to change solar net metering in Florida, uh, which was going to take it from a one-to-one ratio to something discounted, uh, fortunately it did not go through. But the logic behind that, that solar customers are not contributing to the grid, false narrative. Because in reality, you are providing grid stability in the hottest summer days when the grid needs it the most. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for that, Brent. Yeah, the governor did veto that legislation. We're getting tweets about solar power in Florida, too. Here's one from a listener. He says, I heard FPL keeps rates down to discourage solar. Is there any evidence to support that? Uh, Annie, what about this? Uh, it's interesting to hear from that solar installer. Is this a hostile market for solar installation? 
And how compelling is the evidence, in your view, that FPL is attempting to, uh, I guess, put its thumb on the scale in delaying a more robust transition to clean energy, which is becoming a more urgent need every year, frankly. Well, I um, wrote a story earlier this year um, concerning the utilities efforts to um, reduce the benefit for homeowners with solar on their homes. Um, You know, for most people, the fact that they can um, sell excess energy back to the utility company is a huge benefit. Um, And for some people, a huge motivator for putting solar panels on their homes. And um, the utilities wanted to cut back on that benefit for people saying or claiming that it was um, costing their other customers who did not have solar energy more. Um, So certainly I I do think that the utility companies have a motivation to discourage people from investing in solar panels um, or, uh, you know, limit the benefit to people who do have solar on their homes. Yeah. And, you know, Mario, it's all the more ironic, given that we are literally labeled the sunshine state. And there are plenty of other states that have more solar panels on roofs than what you see here in Florida. Absolutely. And I I think that's a a testament to the um, sort of of power that um, these utility companies have in the regulatory environment here in Florida. Right. Um, We could cite a dozen examples of uh, monopoly utility companies here in the state uh, making sure or attempting to make sure that rooftop solar uh, isn't as competitive. And, you know, frankly, at the end of the day, the bottom line is it hurts their bottom line and it hurts their investors. Um, But it it is a net good for folks because it reduces their power bills and at the same time helps us decarbonize the economy rather swiftly. Now, we should note FPL has a very ambitious plan to transition to solar and and green or clean hydrogen, as they call it. Um, They're going to be putting a lot of solar, but it's not necessarily rooftop solar. It's solar that they own themselves. Yeah, that they control. Uh, It's a fascinating investigation, and I want to thank you both for joining us. And it features multiple media outlets. Uh, Check it out online, whichever one you choose. Uh, because it is of enormous, compelling interest to many Florida residents. Uh, Mario Ariza, Floodlight Florida, Annie Martin, Orlando Sentinel, thanks for being with us. Thank you. We'll be right back. Thank you so much. This is the Florida Roundup. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup here on Florida Public Radio. Thanks for listening this week. I'm Tom Hudson in Miami. And I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, last week, the Miami-Dade County Public School Board voted 5-4 to to reject its sex education material for middle and high school students for the upcoming school year. Now, the curriculum had been okayed months ago. But then, hundreds of parents signed petitions citing Florida's new parental rights and education law. That law bans discussion of gender identity and sexual orientation that is not, according to the letter of the law, age-appropriate. The decision left the largest school district in the state with no health and sex ed for students. But then on Thursday this week, the same school board reconsidered and decided it would 
provide the textbooks and instruction after all. The one person to change their vote said it was to make sure schools were in compliance with state education standards requiring student health education. Meantime, also this week, Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz told public school districts around Florida that they do not have to follow an expansion of federal rules to prevent discrimination against LGBTQ plus students. In June, the Federal Department of Education proposed expanding the Title IX education anti-discrimination rules around this. There's been a lot happening here, Melissa, recently around this. We want to hear from you, parents, teachers, students, 305-995-1800. Wherever you are on this issue, we want to hear from you. Same phone number, 305-995-1800. You can share your thoughts on Twitter. Find us at Florida Roundup. Reporter Kate Payne covers education for WLRN and joins us now. Hey, Kate. Hi. Good to have you. So why did the Miami-Dade School Board initially reject its sex education textbooks last week? So the vote last week to reject these textbooks came after residents signed more than 200 petitions challenging these teaching materials. And the complaints included, you know, that some of the material wasn't age appropriate in the view of of these uh, residents, that the district's process in approving the materials wasn't transparent enough. You know, folks took issue with information about emergency contraception, abortion, as well as references to gender identity and sexual orientation. So this was in direct reaction, then, it sounds like, to the passage of the parental rights and education law. Is that correct? Yeah, what we were hearing from people who are uh, taking issue with these materials was going back to this idea of what is age appropriate, Uh, you know, questioning whether, uh, you know, kids in in middle school should be learning about contraception, about abortion. Um, And so it it really did seem that the, the House Bill of 1557 gave these residents cover and, you know, an, an argument, you know, state law to lean on, to point to, to say that um, some of this material wasn't age appropriate, even when the district district staff, you know, a third party reviewer said it was. Why the district or the school board, I should say, change their mind? They're going to provide this instruction after all. So it, it appears that it came down to uh, the outgoing board chair, Perla Tavares-Hampman, um, who, who cast that deciding vote yesterday uh, to, to bring back the textbooks. And, and apparently she, she changed her mind. Um, you know, it, it wasn't clear to the public going into the meeting on Thursday that the board would take this new vote, uh, reversing themselves. Um, you know, they were going into the meeting um, to, you know, assess the potential consequences of not offering sex ed and being out of compliance with state law. And through the discussion, Chair Hampman, you know, made this argument that it was her duty as the chair to ensure that the district complies with state law, you know, offers this required instruction on comprehensive health education, and that uh, she, she felt compelled to follow through on that, regardless of what her personal feelings may be. So then what will students be taught in Miami-Dade schools when it comes to health and sex ed for the upcoming school year? So there are two different versions of these textbooks that the district approved on comprehensive health education, um, which again is is required by state law. So there's information spanning 
you know, bullying and, uh, you know, overall disease health and how to navigate social situations, as well as information that's directly related to reproductive health, human development, um, things like contraception, and also how to, how to navigate conversations with healthcare providers, how to seek out trusted adults uh, when, when kids are in trouble, uh, when they might be uh, experiencing abuse, for instance. So there's a whole span of information uh, that advocates say will, will help keep kids on the right track and, and help them uh, growing to, into healthy adults. 305-995-1800, talking about sex education in Florida. 305-995-1800. Mark in Jacksonville has a bit of a follow-up question for us. Go ahead, Mark. You're on the radio. Yeah, I would just like to know if you can talk a little more about why you think that the school board decided to not give comprehensive sex education to vote against that after receiving roughly, I don't know, 200 angry letters out of a county that has millions of people? Uh, it was just under 300 uh, signatures on uh, on petitions, uh, Mark, that uh, led to the vote last week to reject the uh, sex education textbooks. But, Kate, talk a little bit more about that meeting last week that led to the vote to reject the curriculum before the uh, that vote was reconsidered this week. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty tense meeting last week. Um, at times, it was quite disruptive. You know, some folks who uh, were opposed to the sex ed textbooks um, derailed the meeting, in essence. Uh, the board had to take a recess because um, the audience was so sort of um, riled up. There was, there was so much yelling directed at the board. Um, so definitely, definitely a tense interaction. Um, but still, overwhelmingly, the folks who spoke at that meeting last week and the meeting yesterday were in support of sex ed. Um, but, you know, a number of the board members are up for election uh, next month and, you know, apparently see uh, these parents groups um, who are moving to restrict curriculum across, you know, a number of social issues they apparently see these folks as a, a powerful constituency and, and are responding to them. Kate Payne is a WLRN education reporter in South Florida. You are listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Ray calling from Coconut Creek. Hi, Ray. Go ahead. Hi. Hi, Go I'm ahead, Ray. Question. Sorry, I'm questioning why um, too much information is a bad thing. I thought it's, it's better to have the knowledge to make the correct decisions, whether you're a child or not. Knowledge is knowledge. For them to understand the differences, I think is vital to us growing as a people, not going backwards and and, and being uh, uh, and holding other people as different than us, but realizing that we are all people. We're all going to face the same problems, and if we're all on the same page, we can all deal with them together. Why is this such a bad thing for for Florida Republicans and Florida Republican parents? I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss. Ray, thanks for the call. Uh, Kate Payne, uh, these school board and education issues have divided the state. Uh, There are passionate supporters of the parental rights and education law and equally passionate opponents. Kate. That's right. And to the caller's point about the power of 
education, you know, something that we've heard from uh, advocates for sex ed, and that is borne out in surveys and studies, is that comprehensive health education, sex education, helps reduce disease transmission, helps reduce teen pregnancy, and it actually gives children the tools to identify abuse and to report abuse. It was something that we heard directly from folks who spoke at the meeting yesterday, um, you know, a child abuse advocate who said when they go into classrooms and provide this information, children seek them out and say, you know, I didn't realize I was being abused until I had this information. Uh, so advocates feel very strongly that um, this kind of comprehensive education really has tremendous positive impacts on children's lives. Let's go very quickly to Betty in Sarasota. Betty, almost out of time, but go ahead quickly. Yes, I agree with all your callers. I think it should be mandatory, really, for eighth graders at the very least. More and more kids have been pregnant, getting pregnant. They don't know what's going on, what the consequences are. I've heard of 11- and 12-year-olds getting pregnant in Florida and elsewhere. So that's number one. Number two, as uh, someone who's taught in schools, mostly private schools, but still having taught uh, middle school, um, you know, I would not want to be beholden to parents screaming and yelling and intervening. It's one thing to have PTA meetings, but another thing to have parents who sometimes are ignorant themselves, are not educated, not informed, and, uh, you know, interfering with what's, you know, important. And, you know, it's imperative that teachers are somewhat autonomous and uh, not mm-hmm. beholden to screaming parents. Thanks for that. Uh, by the way, this is an optional class we need to, to mention. Uh, Kate Payne, in the short amount of time we have left, your closing thoughts. Yeah, well, just to, to double down on that idea that parents have long had the right to opt out from this instruction. Districts are required to offer it, but not every student is required to take it. And so I think that's an important point for, for parents to remember going forward and, and something that the Miami-Dade School Board hopes to further educate parents on that they can opt out of this instruction um, if they don't want their their kids to have it. But what was important about um, the district reversing itself, bringing these textbooks back on, is that they'll no longer be opting out the entire district. The entire district. mm -hmm, Yeah. Yeah. Kate Payne, WLRN, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Thank you. And that, is, and that is our show, The Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Amber Amortigai are the producers. Catherine Hobbs is our associate producer. WLRN's Director of Radio Operations and the program's technical director is Peter Meritz. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, Josh Torres, and Miriam Gannis. Richard Ives answers the phones. Theme music is provided by Miami Jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. Thanks for listening and supporting Public Radio. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Melissa Ross. We'll be back next Friday at noon. Have a great weekend. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com.